System detects time stream error. Horrific error. anomaly detected. Must reset time stream to continue hero adventure. Error. Horror month protocols now active. Horror across the decades detected. Welcome nerds to the darkest timeline. Welcome to Horror Month on The Amazing Nerd Show. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. That was The Amazing Nerd Show. All right, on this week's podcast, we're breaking down episode seven of Andor. We're also counting down our favorite horror films of the aughts, and we've got a film review for Halloween Ends. Plus, I'll be reviewing Rings of Power, discussing House of the Dragon, and we're talking some AEW. All right, but before we move on, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, give us a five-star review and DM us a screenshot. Not only will we read it on the show, but we'll send you some amazing Nerd Show swag. Let's get into the news. Every week, we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of nerdum. We're not mild-mannered reporters. We're mere podcasters with opinions. Warning potential spoilers for upcoming films and shows ahead. Check timestamps to avoid spoilers. You have been warned. Christian, up first, we have some Marvel casting rumors for the upcoming Fantastic Four film. According to the Hot Mike show, Adam Driver has been in talks for a role in Marvel's Fantastic Four. In this rumor, they claim that Driver, who is best known for his role as Kylo Ren, had met with Disney Marvel a couple months back. The easiest prediction there is that he would, of course, be playing you know a villain role, more specifically, Doctor Doom. But personally, I could also see him as Mr. Fantastic if they were, you know, trying to go outside the villain route. But speaking of Reed Richards, another rumor came out of Murphy's Multiverse that Tom Ellis, star of Lucifer, is being considered for Mr. Fantastic. Neither casting has been confirmed yet, but it seems a wide net has been casted to try and rope this team together for the MCU. Uh, I feel like at this point, everyone's been rumored for Reed Richards. Yeah. Because <laughs> I feel like we have a story like this, like every week, right? Like. I've never seen um, Lucifer, so I, I don't really know this dude's work, but I know he has a huge fan base, mm -hmm. um, or at least that show does. Now, Adam Driver for Doctor Doom is a no-brainer. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm surprised we haven't heard more rumors, like you know, Marvel-wise associated with him, because I could just see him playing a litany of different like Marvel villains. Uh, but you know, maybe he would see that as like typecasting after you know being associated with Kylo Ren uh -huh. for so long. Another also, masked character. <laughs> yeah, and it also it's not like he's hurting for a job, so mm -hmm. I could see him wanting to like move on from genre films for at least a little bit. But I would, I mean, I would absolutely be all for him playing Doctor Doom. I feel like that's a perfect fit. Do you think they're gonna give Doctor Doom an accent, or are we? Gonna... I don't know. Maybe. And they're gonna if if they casted Adam Driver. They're probably going to let him do what he wants to do. And I could see that guy like getting deep into the character. Mm. So I, I could I could definitely see him having an accent is what I'm trying to say. As far as the hunt for Reed Richards goes, I was figuring that. I, do you feel like they would want to go with an older casting or a younger casting? I don't know what kind of team they want to build for that role, you know, because they go older. I'm assuming they want to add probably the kids and stuff and make it a family affair. But I, I assumed that they might want to be like middle range. So it's someone that can do the role for many years. Part of me thinks that they would want to cast younger. So the actors wouldn't necessarily age out of the roles. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I don't feel like we're going to get like a full origin story. Um, you know, like, I don't think you're going to get like, you know, read courting Sue. I'm guessing that most likely 
you know, you'll see them get their powers, but you won't see like those relationships from square one, like, you know, Reed and Sue, maybe they're engaged or something like that. So, I mean, you'll probably get someone around Krasinski's age, probably like in his 30s um, or so. But I don't think they're going to be like a full family unit with kids and everything like that. I think that's going to come down the line because you want to I mean, you want to leave some room for growth with the characters. I mean, there's so much story to tell with them starting a family. Well, moving on, we've got another Marvel casting rumor, this time for Wonder Man. The potential Wonder Man series or special coming to Disney Plus may star Yaha Abdul-Mateen II, according to Screen Geek. They have claimed that Yaha has already been in talks for the role. Mateen is known for his role as, you know, uh, Black Manta in the Aquaman films and most recently, the new Candyman. I mean, Yaha's an incredibly talented actor. So, I mean, if you're Disney and you can get him to be part of the MCU, I mean, you get him to be part of the MCU. Uh, and you pretty much let him, you know, choose whatever role he wants. So, but at the same time, you know, would I like to see him play a more interesting role? <laughs> I'm just not a huge Wonder Man fan. Uh, so, yeah, no, I would love to see him as maybe someone else, but whatever. Uh, I'll take it. All right, in our next story, we have a rumor that a young Avenger might be popping up in the upcoming WandaVision spinoff show, Agatha. A casting call leak may have uncovered a couple of young Avengers appearing in Agatha Coven of Chaos. According to Murphy's Multiverse, back in June, Marvel was seeking someone between the ages of 17 and 20 to play a gay lead character, described as witty and astute and a bit of a fanboy, which could be their description for Billy Kaplan, aka Wicked. Along with that was also the description of another gay male between 17 and 20 with a great sense of humor and a kind soul, which has led to people speculating based off, you know, the possibility of Wiccan showing up that this second role would be then Hulkling. The introduction of Wiccan in the MCU could be an easy connection as well for the rumored Scarlet Witch film in the future, though having two reality bending characters in the MCU could also play a big role in, you know, Secret Wars in the future. Well, this story's a little misleading. I mean, Billy already debuted. So, I mean, it's not really news that he's showing up in, you know, <laughs> the MCU. I mean, Hawkling, you know, that I mean, that's definitely exciting um, if that's true. But yeah, no, I, I kind of assume that we'd be seeing the twins again in the series. Like I could see a, a similar storyline to what we got in the comic books where, you know, Billy doesn't realize who his mom is. Um, like she's somehow like taking his soul and like put it into another child or something like that. And then Agatha kind of discovers what exactly happened. Um, because I mean, technically they shouldn't exist in this mm -hmm. reality right now, but maybe like her die with her dying breath, like, you know, she somehow reaches out and, you know, tries to save them. Cause I mean, the storyline in the comic books are, is just so convoluted. <laughs> I mean, does that take away from her, like, acceptance at the end of Multiverse of Madness, though? If, she, if she's trying to, like, last breath, bring them back? <laughs> well, technically, no. Not if these aren't two souls from an alternate reality. Like, these could be her versions of Billy and Tommy. And she's just found them, you know, wherever they went to after they disappeared. Because I believe that's basically how it worked in The Young Avengers. Because Billy and... Tommy don't even realize at first that their mother is uh, mm -hmm. Scarlet Witch. And when we do first meet up with Billy, he is a giant, like, fanboy. I mean, he's rocking, like, Thor gear and shit. 
Uh huh. He was called the Asgardian for yes, a little while. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The name change doesn't come until later when he discovers who his mom is. It's an insane storyline. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> But I could see it working that way here. But who the hell knows? I mean, that's just my headcanon right now. Hawkling, though, is a whole different ball of wax. And that's a backstory in origin that I don't even see, like, what angle they take to really, <laughs> you know, introduce him to the MCU. Because that's some seriously, like, complicated shit. I mean, that second one felt very vague. I feel like anyone could be, that could just be a friend. Who knows? You know, it doesn't have to be a hero. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it feels like if you're going to introduce a teenage Billy that, you know, Hawkling is not too far away. Um, but it does feel like a bit much, you know, for this series. Mm -hmm. But who knows? That's what season two is for, right? You know, I could also see him popping up in like Marvels. So, I mean, he's got tons of ties there. All right, and lastly on the Marvel front, we have one more casting rumor, and this time for Mephisto. Lizzie Hill of Cosmic Circus claimed on Twitter this past week that Marvel Studios has casted Sasha Baron Cohen in the Ironheart series as none other than the most anticipated character in Marvel history, Mephisto, which if this is happening, I hope it comes quick in the Ironheart series, as I don't imagine Mephisto being a central player in her debut show, and I'd hate for fans to be waiting for the arrival of Mephisto over paying attention to this story. But who knows, maybe he's got some type of influence over the hood or something in general. Just, you know, it seems a little odd for Mephisto to be popping up in Ironheart. But it is what it is. Well, I mean, it is a theme that they've played with in the books before. The whole, you know, magic versus technology mm -hmm. angle. And that's kind of what it seems like they're going with. With, you know, introducing a character like Hood into the show. Like, in him being, like, the main villain. So I could see him being the one who gives Parker Robbins, you know, his cloak. Um, in the comics, it's actually Dormammu. But we know currently Dormammu is not available, so... Why not bring in Mephisto? But regardless of the storyline, I feel like Sasha Baron Cohen is a great fit for the role. I mean, he's got awesome range as an actor, and we know he can play a mischievous character. Hmm. I feel like people don't uh, underestimate how serious he can be in a role as well. As as funny as him playing Mephisto can be, I well, can definitely see him being, you know. Yeah, because they just associate him with Borat. But I mean, he's an Oscar-nominated actor, so... I mean, yeah, he could handle this role. All right, on the DC front, we've got the Batman director, Matt Reeves, planning some more Batman villain spinoff projects. With the Penguin series currently in the works over at Warner Brothers Discovery, Matt Reeves seems to want to, you know, double down on villain spinoffs. THR reported that Reeves is interested in doing a Professor Pig, Clayface, and Scarecrow spinoff in his Batman universe. There has been plenty of rumors on Clayface's arrival in the Penguin series. I wouldn't be too surprised to know that Professor Pig and Scarecrow could be potential baddies in the near future with the Batman. So they haven't specified whether or not this is going to be in like film form or is this going to be more like HBO Max series like the Penguin? My guess is HBO Max series, but they didn't really specify if it's going to be a series or a movie. Well, I mean, Batman has the strongest rogue gallery of probably any superhero. Um, mm -hmm. And I would definitely be interested in seeing any of these characters, you know, get screen time. Um, but at the same time, like I want to see them go up against Batman. 
And if yeah. getting like an origin series or film means that we're not going to get to see those characters eventually throw down with Batman, I don't know if I want that. Like, because I don't know, like, I'd be if they would, you know, start a character off in a series and then eventually have them introduced into like the Batman, you know, film franchise, which you know they're planning right now. You know, unless mm. they have Batman pop up in one of the shows. And we're assuming a lot here, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, it'd be cool if they were doing like a movie and a series each like film, but I don't, that might be too much for one year, you know? Yeah, because if the series is a flop, who's going to want to see a film featuring, you know, that villain? But once again, we're assuming a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these could be films that, you know, serve as origin stories and maybe Batman's part of it. He's just not like the focal point of it. But that seems bizarre also. But I mean, the Scarecrow is easily like one of my top five favorite like Batman villains. And I would love to see him like fully featured as like the main villain in a film. You know, I mean, he's in Batman Begins, but he's more of like a side character. Mm -hmm. I feel like most uh, modern media with Scarecrow nowadays, he put they put him as a side character. Which is definitely disappointing because, I mean, he could definitely hold his own against Batman and he's an incredibly interesting character. So up next, we have James Gunn in talks to direct a top secret new DC Comics movie. It looks like James Gunn is adding to his already busy workload over at Warner Brothers Discovery as THR reported on Gunn having an additional project on top of Peacemaker and its unannounced spinoff that he is currently working on. They claim that it will be another film, which, you know, the easiest thing to say would be, you know, a Suicide Squad sequel. But Gunn himself has stated that a you know sequel to Suicide Squad might not be necessarily in the works right away. And this report also has leaned more on this being a project for another character or characters. And they also say that whatever this project will be will also include the producers Peter um, Safran, who had worked on Shazam and Peacemaker in the past. Gunn continues to be, you know, invested in DC projects. So again, I just hope they approach the man with the keys to the kingdom and see if he will you know, be interested in a leadership role over on the DCEU. Oh my God. Give me a James Gunn Helms Lobo film. Oh, that would be, <laughs> that would just be magical. Uh -huh. It feels like such a great fit for his like sensibilities as a director too. It could be ultra violent and just balls to the wall insane. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, give me that right now, damn it. <laughs> Make that happen, DC. I honestly didn't think too hard on like what project I would want to see him do next. Cause you know, I know he wants to pick some random character in the DC universe yeah. to do something on, you know? I could see him doing like Plastic Man or something uh -huh. insane like that. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. I mean, DC definitely needs to, you know, just give him, you know, the keys to the castle and let him choose whatever he wants because he's the kind of talent that you want to keep happy and on board, mm -hmm. you know, with whatever, whatever your plans are. I mean, I still feel like he should be, you know, their Kevin Foggy and let him just kind of steer the ship. But that leads us right into our next story. Uh, the embattled DCEU boss, Walter Hamada, Hamada, Hamada. How do we say that, Christian? I said Hamada. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> well, he has officially 
parted ways with Warner Brothers. Deadline reports that DC Films president Walter Hamada has officially stepped down from the role. Sources say that Hamada had you know, been absent from creative team meetings for quite a while. After continuous bad press and arguably a bad run over the past few years launching the DCEU, you could say that the writing was on the wall, but again, this leaves DC Films with even less oversight over its projects if that was even possible at this point. Yeah, because I thought the the original rumor plan was for him to stay on board um, to help with the transition, um, you know, for whoever, you know, was taking on that role. But apparently Warner Brothers has really been struggling courting someone new. Um, I'm sure part of it's all the bad press that they received after they just like canned Batgirl out of nowhere, even though it was pretty much finished. Mm -hmm. And then you have the rumor of a pending sale to Universal that I know that they've come out and, you know, obviously denied, but still it's, it sounds like you'd be taking over a, a sinking ship because if that sale does take place, you know, Universal is going to want to put their own people in those roles, but who knows? I mean, maybe if Black Adam is super successful at the box office this weekend, that might actually attract more people to the job. And we'll see how that film is uh, next week when we talk about it on the show. But before moving on, I guess we did get kind of confirmation of that rumor that was uh, flying around last week that uh, a Superman project is indeed in works over at DC. Um, it looks like Henry Cavill is coming back uh, and the project would essentially be Man of Steel 2. Uh, it's being produced by Charles Roven and they are currently searching for writers. And this is coming from The Hollywood Reporter. Ah, could that be the secret project that James Gunn is working on? Who knows? Wasn't he originally offered Superman yes. in the past? He was okay. offered either Superman or Suicide Squad, and he chose Suicide Squad, so. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I know he's done his own, like, version of, like, an evil Superman story um, with Brightburn, right? Mm -hmm. um, I I would, I'd be curious to see what a James Gunn-led Superman would look like. He has talked about being interested in doing like Suicide Squad versus Superman, but I, I don't know if that would ever come to fruition. I mean, as a director, he has, you know, range where he could pull off a more stoic character. So, but I'm just happy that Henry Cavill is getting another crack at the character. And while I wasn't a huge fan of Man of Steel, I do feel like he's great in the role. You no, know, he's got real, you know, leading man energy. He's been doing great in uh, the Witcher series so far. So I would just love to see like a balls to the wall action film, though, this time out. Like you're not going to do an origin story with, you know, Henry, right? <laughs> he's too old at this point to be playing a younger, you know, mm. Clark Kent. So just drop him in like an action packed, like huge stakes type film where he's got to save the world, you know, or the universe. Either. I mean, we've got a taste of that with, you know, him going up against Darkseid and Doomsday, but I want a whole film like that. He doesn't even have to be on Earth, goddammit. All right, Christian, it's time to break down episode seven of Andor. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for Andor ahead. You have been warned. I've been wondering all day how I could be sure of confiding in you. I don't know what we're talking about. It's a lie. The Mon Mothma people think they know. It's a lie. It's a projection. It's a front. I've learned from Palpatine. If I show you the stone in my hand, you miss the knife at your throat. 
This week's episode begins with Cyril at his mother's house, of course, preparing for his interview that his uncle set up. Again, his mother just picks apart every decision that he has made up to this point. You know, she specifically focuses in on that high collar, you know, and how it makes him look extremely desperate and attention seeking. But while all this is happening on a screen nearby, they show the rebel activity that went down on Aldani as it broadcasts across Coruscant. Yeah, I could see this being the start of when he starts to dig in um, and maybe figure out that Cassian was involved. The news of the robbery on Aldani sparks immediate action from Palpatine himself, as we learn from the Imperial Security Bureau's debriefing. Here, Colonel Wolf Gilrin from Clone Wars speaks on the Emperor's behalf, explaining their tightening grip on the galaxy after the actions of the Rebels, raising taxes, tariffs, and creating harsher punishments overall for crimes against the Empire, all in the name of the Imperial Emergency Act. It was interesting that this drew the attention of Palpatine, um, and now he's really like tightening their grip, uh, you know, on the galaxy, uh, kind of really playing into, uh, you know, Luthen's hands. This is exactly what he wanted. Um, I also thought it was cool to see like a little appearance by Yulorn. It's always neat to, you know, get these little like live action cameos. I mean, I know he first appears in A New Hope, but I mean, it's a character that I really got to know in like Clone Wars and Rebels. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought that was cool. And we'll see if he ends up playing a bigger role in the show. This new act put in place by the Emperor grants the Security Bureau even more power. Power that Dedra immediately puts to use later in the show by forcing other Imperials outside her sector to collect data to help prove her points on the growing rebel threat. What she fears most is that the Empire is just playing directly into the Rebels' hands, as harsher punishments will only drive more people to the Rebel cause. Yep, and she's not wrong. Later on the show, when Blevin attempts to call you know, Dedra out in front of the Major, she finally seems to get Partagaz's attention by going outside conventional Imperial means, which may set a new precedent in Imperial actions for the future. Though Partagaz was quick to remind Dedra to watch her back, after giving her Blevin's second I really love watching this like blow up in his face. You, you gotta love office politics, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, she's a character who's all business uh, and feels like someone who's gonna get completely obsessed with this. So the rebels are definitely gonna have their hands full. Mon Mothma, after hearing what happened on Aldani, quickly makes her way to Luthen to find out if it was you know his team that did this. Mon Mothma is just terrified by the new act being you know put in place, claiming the actions Luthen has taken will cause people to suffer. But as Dedra mentioned earlier, this is an announcement of the rebellion's arrival, and while people may be put under you know harsher conditions this is ultimately what luthan wants to drive the reality of their oppressors into the face of the public and create a larger rebellion in the end yeah i was kind of surprised with like how in the dark mamothma seemed to be i kind of assumed that she at least had an inkling of what mm-hmm. was going on but apparently not but my guess is it's kind of luthan's way of protecting her also just in case the imperials figure out what exactly is going on exactly you can't snitch on things you don't know also did you catch the uh, temple guard mask in the museum this time around mm-hmm. i saw the temple guard mask. yeah it, it feels like they're giving us more and more like easter eggs <laughs> in this museum <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense why he has all this or how he has all this, but I don't know. I'm loving it because <laughs> even think about it, like I think it's their way of like really like placating fans because you're not getting a lot of, you know, Easter eggs anywhere else. Like it's just here in the museum. 
So, I mean, I'll take it. I'm not going to complain. I will say I am really enjoying the, the little things that are in this show with all these attentions to detail. Like, at the start of the show, they're talking about um, Cyril's collar, how that's, like, about, you know, getting attention. And then the very next shot is Miro heightening up her collar before going into the meeting with them uh with all the security folks that Great was stuff. a nice touch yeah mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think it's you know showing that they're kindred spirits and a little foreshadowing that you know they might end up you know crossing paths somewhere down the line afterwards we get a quick glimpse of Cinta making her escape from aldani followed by vel's attempts to make contact with luthan while on coruscant but instead of meeting up with him, she encounters his assistant, Clea, who puts Vel up to the task of locating and eliminating Andor, as he is the only loose end after their heist that could, you know, really tie back to Luthen. So, I don't know, I was surprised by this, and I don't know if I buy it. Like, I, I feel like Luthen was so invested in Cassian, like, joining the Rebels. Um, and he might have just been playing to my guess. But I, I don't know, like he had so much knowledge about his history and everything. I just find it hard that he would be so willing to dispose of him um, so quickly that he wouldn't be trying to further their relationship, especially after, you know, pulling off this, you know, seemingly impossible mission. So I could almost see this being a case of Clea working on her own to like tie up any loose ends uh, without Luthen's knowledge. When we finally meet up with Cassian, it seems he's pulling the biggest rookie mistake by returning home to his mother Marva with big plans to get her off planet, especially now that the Empire has seized control of Ferex. Before they depart, Andor visits with Bix, who is still rocking a pretty nasty scar from the assault on Ferex. It's clear that the town along with Bix all kind of feel the same way that Cassian was at fault for the Empire taking over. Cassian does his best to, you know, argue that it's just as much, you know, Tim's fault and Bix's fault, but this doesn't really play over well with Bix, which how could you actually blame her? She was forced to be chained up against a wall next to her dead boyfriend for a couple of hours. Yeah, I gotta say, I was definitely surprised that Cassian would risk going back, but it just shows you how much Marva really means to him and Bix also for that matter, I guess. Uh, but yeah, no, this, this definitely feels like a huge mistake on his part. And I don't know about you, but I don't know. I was getting the vibe that like B2 could have been possibly like wiretapped or something. I don't know what they call that in space Hmm. (laughs) or in Star Wars, but, uh, he just felt like he was a little off for some reason. I didn't pick that up, but it definitely felt like there was some stuff he knew about Marva that, uh, Andor didn't, at least a little later on. Yeah. I mean, that, that's also true because i felt like they were hinting at that in earlier episodes like there's something Mm -hmm. going on with her health and she might be trying to protect cassian from that like knowledge the next day andor is you know getting up in the morning trying to escape from ferrix after giving marva some time to rest and think about it but she ultimately refuses claiming that she wants to stay back and fight for the rebellion here on ferrix Marva believes that, you know, the events on Aldani will be the spark that brings change, having no idea that her son, Andor, was, you know, responsible for that heist. I don't remember the name of the actress who's playing Marva offhand, but my God, she's just amazing with these monologues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I was ready to pick up a blaster and fight. <laughs> also, I do feel like she has some kind of prior relationship to Luthen somehow like yeah she probably doesn't know what Cassian has been up to 
but maybe she put like Cassian on Luthen's uh, radar. Yeah, I'm still on that boat where she's probably the one that told Luthen all about him. Yeah, exactly. Or, I mean, maybe it could be Bix. She did say that she didn't know anything about Luthen, but you never know if she's lying to protect him. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, she was the one who made the introduction, so. And next to Marva, I don't feel like anyone else would have that much faith in Cassian, especially seeing what kind of fuck up he's been, you know, in the past. During this conversation, we learn what actually happened to Clem years back as when the Empire first marched through the mining town to celebrate their new regime, Clem was mistaken to be, you know, a protester after he attempted to stop others from throwing rocks at clone troopers. And as if to respond to me questioning hangings being in Star Wars, the Empire hung Clem in the town square to make an example of what happens to you when you go against the Empire. Yeah, man, I mean, that's what I told you that's why fascists hang people yeah 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 anyway uh <laughs> yeah i mean we were right about our assumption that you know the, the clone troopers in the trailer was probably from a flashback this seems like it's taking place right after the empire is taking over the galaxy um i kind of figured we'd end up getting a flashback like this but it didn't make it any less heartbreaking i mean it is kind of like a missing piece of the puzzle like what actually makes Cassian, you know, tick at this point. You know, he's he's suffered a lot of loss in his life. Marva explains to, you know, Cassian that the Aldani heist inspired her for the first time in years to be able to smile within the town square, which Clem was hung. But Cassian still simply can't see it from her point of view, leading for the two to go their own ways. But before he leaves, Marva asks Cassian to also give up his hunt for his sister, believing that she must have died with everyone else on his home world. Yeah, I think she's protecting him from something. Um, I don't believe her at all. Like, I, I, I have a feeling she actually knows where his sister is. Mm. It'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. Because, I mean, they opened the series with that. Um, and they haven't really, like, touched on it since. So, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a big story there, like, brewing. I'm wondering, too, like, the more he sees the cause and effect of his actions and what they pulled off in that heist... Um, like how it's kind of inspiring people, like if that's going to end up being like the catalyst to really like convince him to, you know, join Mark, to really like convince him to join Luthen in his cause. I mean, he's still got to open up that manifesto and give it a read, you know? Well, as we find out later on in the episode, he's going to have plenty of time to do so, so. Across the galaxy, Mon Mothma is having yet another dinner party with politicians and people of note. More importantly, she speaks with an old friend and banker, Takehoma. The two dance around their political beliefs as Mothma you know, decides to divulge the truth of who she is to a man that she hopes that she can trust. With the Empire breathing down her neck, she hopes that Takehoma will be able to, you know, keep helping funnel funds to the Rebellion in the same way that she has been, you know, using charitable donations. As she claims, you know, her job has just been to collect the funds for the Rebels. I love this scene. It really gave us an inside look of, like, how Mamathma, you know, perceives her role and how she operates. Um, you know, and I feel like it was kind of implied, but it was great, like, hearing it from her here. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole quote about her holding a rock in one hand so you don't notice the knife to your throat in the other was great. And I thought really gave you like the first look of the leader that she is going to eventually become. 
We return to Cassian who is now hiding out on what can only be described as Miami in space, but his tropical getaway doesn't go all as planned as the weight of his actions on Aldani catch up with him when he, like Clem, gets mistaken to be a part of a group of rebels and sentenced to six years in prison after being rounded up by a disgruntled shore trooper and a KX droid. Yeah, I wasn't expecting this turn of events. Like, this was pretty much instant karma for him, uh -huh. right? <laughs> My guess is Luthen, or maybe even like Saw Guerrero, who we haven't seen yet. We know he's going to be part of the series. Um, but maybe they have like operatives working on the inside um, and they eventually help him, you know, escape. I mean, we've seen in the trailer that some shit's going to go down. In yeah, that, in that place. So Yeah, I just can't imagine him being able to break out on his own. Mm. But I mean... He's definitely capable, so maybe I'm wrong. And maybe, like, that's how he gets on Saw's radar. But with this being episode seven, you gotta figure that's happening soonish, right? Can't recall, but I felt like Saw didn't recognize who he was in Rogue One, but, you know, continuity sometimes all over the place. Yeah, I, I don't think they actually have any kind of interaction, but I could be wrong. Um, Saw is also pretty off his rocker in Rogue yeah. One. So maybe he wouldn't even recognize him regardless. Uh, but I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe, you know, they don't actually have any kind of relationship in the series. And we just kind of see like Luthen like interacting with Saw. Before our show closes, we meet back up with Cyril, who, you know, thanks to his uncle, is having his past discretions on Ferrix be ignored so that he can have a new desk job sorting paperwork for the Bureau of Standards on, on fuel purity, which, you know, looks like a bigger hellscape than the office from Office Space. I could see him maybe like possibly using the resources at his disposal to continue somehow to like investigate what's going on with Cassian and, you know, perhaps this uprising. Exactly. I mean, he's an overachiever. We know that he's going to, if he sees something, I was almost expecting him to find something right there in that final shot. Like, oh, he saw something a little bit off and now he's going to investigate further. But yeah, I mean, all in all, I thought this was another great episode, really kind of exploring the aftermath of, you know, the heist and just really getting to see like how it it's like impacting the rest of the galaxy. Um, and all these characters that we've been introduced to. Just with like the little cameos we got and, you know, all the stormtroopers and shore troopers and I mean, even the, you know, KX droid. And not that those elements not being in the first six episodes hurt my enjoyment at all, but I'm still a giant like 13 year old. So I got excited when I saw clone troopers. I can't lie. Uh -huh. Yeah, I definitely wasn't expecting to see some shore troopers in this show, but you know, we're still going to get some more toys for you in the end, I'm sure. Uh, trust me, Christian, I've got plenty of short troopers at this point. <laughs> I'm good. Unless they give me like a different look, I I'm okay. When Rogue One came out, we got like 10 versions uh -huh. of those troopers. So. <laughs> but no Saw Guerrero figure for some reason. But, but they finally did put him in the line this year because he was on my like wish list. Um, and if you follow us on Instagram, you know I got a great deal this past week at Target for him. That's at Amazing Nerd Show on all your favorite social media platforms. But that's going to do it for now. Make sure to join us next week as we break down episode eight of Andor. All right, Christian, so you got a full season review for us. That's right. I finished Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Warning spoiler alert. Minor spoilers for Rings of Power ahead. You have been warned. Evil does not sleep. There's far more at stake here than just our lives. Fight with me. 
for all Middle Earth. You've lost majority. What are you? I am no god. At least, not yet. You will be known at last for who you truly are. For you are Lord In my initial reactions for the show, you know, Rings of Power left me wanting more, and I can only really say that that feeling carried to the end in the best of ways. While the show is far from being complex, and I was able to see where most of it was going, the journey never stopped captivating me with what felt like a fully realized world. They do have, you know, Tolkien to thank for that, but it would have been very easy to mess this kind of show up. And Amazon Prime simply didn't do that. The show is driven by strong performances from its cast. Morphid Clark from episode one is the show's MVP as Galadriel, giving one hell of a lead performance, along with Robert Arameo as Elrond, who has been giving me, you know, a new appreciation for this character as his time with the dwarves by far was some of the you know best character moments in the show. Even my complaints about the Harfoots and the human storyline were eventually eased as we got to know these characters much better, though I still could care less what's going on between the elf and you know that kid's mom. I do think there has been an unfair comparison right now with you know Game of Thrones and this show coming out at the same time just because they're both fantasy series, but the two universes are very different, and when I look back to how I felt while watching Lord of the Rings, I felt like it still captured that Peter Jackson feel, even though this is a much more polished looking show, thanks to Amazon's unlimited budget. You know, whereas Game of Thrones is meant to be more murky and dark, you know, the light of hope shines through with Lord of the Rings. Yes, this story is a little bit simpler, but even for a prequel show, I never felt like it was bogged down by, you know, characters with plot armor or narratives that wouldn't fit within the universe as we know it. It's a warm tale that was exciting to see the beginnings of, and I hope Amazon continues to keep delivering on. So, for my grade, I will be giving Rings of Power Season 1 an A-. And now a quick word from our sponsor, Manscaped. Hey you, got bush? Well, you definitely do if you haven't tried the best products from our sponsor today, Manscaped. Taking control of your bush is important. These products are so good, you're gonna be showing pride in your new bush-free yard. It's a fact that you'll have the best kept nutsack on the cul-de-sac, so save big and be the most hygienic version of yourself by using our discount code 20NerdShow for 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com. Listeners, you know I don't got bush because Manscaped helps keep my rocket raccoon high and tight. Whether you're looking to go bald like an eagle or just in need of a safe trim, Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full body grooming game. Listeners, the grooming package I highly recommend is the Performance Package 4.0. That's because inside the package is the Lawnmower 4.0. This electric trimmer is a bush's worst nightmare. This trimmer is designed to reduce grooming accidents and shave hair on loose skin 
thanks to its ceramic blades and advanced skin safe technology. No need for night vision goggles, this trimmer has a LED light to allow you to mow the lawn in the dark. It's basic landscaping. When you trim the hedges, the tree stands taller. The second best tool in the performance package is the Weed Whacker. This fine-tuned nose and ear hair trimmer will make sure your nasty nose pubes are under control. Instantly add some pep to your step with the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Spray-On Testy Toner. With a performance package purchase, you get two free gifts, a shed travel bag and the patterned high performance reduced chafing manscaped boxers. They have a bunch of other products on their website to help you maximize your confidence and grooming game. So listeners get 20% off plus free shipping with our code 20NerdShow at Manscaped.com. Kate Bush may be trending at the moment, but your bush needs some help. That's right, so make sure you're running up that hill and get 20% off and free shipping at Manscaped.com by using our code 20NerdShow. It's time to level up your grooming game with the ultimate bushwhacking tools from Manscaped. Well, all right, it's time to get into this week's Horror Month Countdown. This time we're talking our personal top five horror films of the 2000s, which is where I really began to start my journey into horror. But Damon, what made the 2000s a unique time for horror fans? The aughts was the start of another renaissance period of horror, with large variety of different trends making the genre a dominant force at the box office. Early on in the decade, we as a nation suffered a great tragedy with the events of 9-11. Grief, anxiety, and fear swept the country as for the first time in a long time, we felt vulnerable. As it often does, horror cinema mirrored the collective mood, and we saw the rise of colder, more violent films. Across the board throughout the genre, the element of home invasion became more of a predominant theme, tapping into that paranoia that we as a nation no longer felt safe. During this period, films like Eli Roth's Hostel and James Wan's Saw became hits. Many of these films started to be labeled by some lazy critics as simply torture porn, with their argument being that the movies glamorized and focused on suffering and gore instead of story. This unfair generalization is much like the attacks that slasher films dealt with in the 80s, and each film should obviously be judged on their own merits. At times, art is meant to be uncomfortable, and just because it challenges your sensibilities doesn't mean you should overlook its nuances, but that's an argument for another time. Internationally, the J&K horror boom was happening and finally reached our shores with the American remake of Ringu. The Ring was a huge success at the box office, with Hollywood of course trying to cash in by remaking any Japanese or Korean horror title they could get their hands on to mix results. Another country, France, had their own influential horror movement happening, with a wave of transgressive films that challenged taboos known as the New French Extremity. But foreign films were the only movies that Hollywood was interested in giving the remake treatment to. Anything horror related with an ounce of name recognition and nostalgia attached was getting remade. It started with the successful reimagining of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Dawn of the Dead, and honestly, I don't think it ever truly ended. Now, remakes are nothing new to the genre, with Hammer most notably doing it with the Universal Monsters. But while I love the original Stepfather, it's no Dracula, so this phase started to wear a little thin to say the least. But speaking of the aforementioned Dawn of the Dead remake, just to really show you the scope of the absolute smorgasbord of horror we had in the aughts, I didn't even talk about the zombie craze or the slew of found footage movies that swept the decade. And even though, of course, you have to take the good with the bad, and a lot of these trends overstate their welcome because, you know, Hollywood likes to beat things into the ground, 
but one could argue this was an embarrassment of riches for horror fans. I mean, I remember pretty much going to the theater every weekend with friends to check out the newest genre offering. That's something you just couldn't do in the 90s. So needless to say, as a horror fan, the genre was off to an exciting start with the new millennium. All right, before we get started with the countdown, uh, some quick honorable mentions, and this is really what my top 10 would look like. Um, Inside Final Destination, The Orphanage, American Psycho, Shaun of the Dead, and Devil's Rejects. Christian, any honorable mentions this week? Yeah, I got a ton too because 2000s just pumped out movie after movie. Um, I definitely have to put Freddy vs. Jason. 28 Weeks Later, The Grudge, Slither, Ginger Snaps, Dog Soldiers, and Donnie Darko all definitely have to be mentioned here. And now for the Amazing Nerd Show's top five horror films of the 2000s. Starting with Damon's number five, 28 Days Later. Mr. Bridges. Were you bitten? This is Dawn. They live four doors now. Were you bitten? Did any of the blood get in your mouth? Mark? So Danny Boyle helped reintroduce the world to the zombie subgenre with his own cinematically stylized take on what Romero pioneered decades earlier. Jim, awakening in a post-apocalyptic world, struggles to keep his humanity as he tries to survive a plague of rage ghouls. While not necessarily the typical Romero gore fest, Boyle still manages to honor the director's vision by cranking up the adrenaline and intensity and deliver a film laced with well-established tropes and a dose of social commentary. 28 Days Later, like every good film in the genre should, gives us a reflection of where we were at as a society at the time. And come to think of it, the follow-up 28 months later is pretty fucking amazing also. Christian's number five, Shaun of the Dead. Take on, go to Mums, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! As we've seen in these Horror Month countdowns, not every film needs to be terrifying to be a classic, and Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead is one of the best horror comedies in history. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost are a duo for the ages as the two of them traverse what it would be like during the start of the zombie apocalypse. Shaun, you know, just wanting things to mull over, is doing his best as he slowly becomes a leader in saving his friends and family, and with the heightened film style of Edgar Wright, the film keeps an upbeat tempo and the laughs flowing from scene to scene. And if you're anything like me, you'll be quoting and watching this film for years to come. Damon's number four, The Ring. Is he still in the dark place? No. He set it free. You helped her? Yeah. Why did you do that? What's wrong, honey? You weren't supposed to help her. It's okay now. She's not gonna hurt you. She... Don't you understand, Rachel? She never sleeps. 
The American remake of The Ring is a tentpole type film that exposed US audiences to the Japanese brand of horror, and with that ushered in countless good and bad J-horror remakes that really owned the box office for the next couple years afterwards. And even now its influence is still felt in horror. From the dread-inducing imagery to the subversion of the typical Western ghost story ending that usually sees the sunrise as some tortured soul is freed to the afterlife. Not in the ring, no. The ring gave us the template for a much darker story that's still being used to this day. I mean, my god, the closet scene is one of the biggest jump scares I've ever experienced in a theater. It collectively scared the shit out of the entire audience in a way I don't think I've seen since. It's a kind of moment as a horror fan you never forget, and is definitely one of the reasons why The Ring is one of my favorite horror films of the decade. Christian's number four, Final Destination. Play your hunt, Alex, if you think you can get away with it. But remember... The risk of cheating the plan, of disrespecting the design, could incite a fury that could terrorize even the Grim Reaper. And you don't even want to fuck with that, Mac Daddy. Ah yes, one of the films that traumatized me as a child and to this day has me looking around imagining death's design for me, but that's the kind of lasting impression Final Destination has on its audience. Growing up now I've recognized some of the more ridiculous moments of this franchise as a whole, but it's still one of those movies that gets you thinking about how everything around you could kill you at any time. It's laced with 2000s cheese, but also creative and dynamic kills that has made for a lasting franchise. I mean, who else refuses to drive behind a log truck now? Cause I know I'm not the only one. Damon's number three, Drake or Treat. You must really like Halloween. You mean Samhain? What? Samhain, also known as All Hallows Eve, also known as Halloween. Predating Christianity, the Celtic holiday was celebrated on the one night between autumn and winter when the barrier between the living and the dead was thinnest and often involved rituals that included human sacrifice. I like your eye patch. Now, this really shouldn't be much of a surprise to anyone who actually listens to the podcast on a regular basis, since I've professed my love for Michael Dotry's holiday horror classic many times at this point. Uh, Trick or Treat is a delightfully well-crafted anthology film that celebrates all things the season. In the film, Sam is the wicked patron saint of Halloween, and he makes sure the citizens of a small town are properly honoring its rituals. In four nonlinear yet tightly woven together tales of horror, Dotri manages to capture the mischievous spirit of the night. He keeps it fun and whimsical even as he shows us the terror that lurks beneath All Hallows Eve. I mean, it's a real testament to the film's impressive rise to cult classic status that once October rolls around, it sits right next to Carpenter's original Halloween on many horror fans' must-watch lists. So if you haven't seen it yet, do yourself a favor and check it out before another Halloween passes us by. Christian's number three, The Mist. Yes, I know! It is true! But now we are being punished. The judgment is being brought down upon us. The fiends of hell, you see, they Yes, no. it is your fault. No. 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 No.
Based on the Stephen King book of the same name, this small town grocery store becomes the tense, mysterious hellscape that kind of embodies the same feel of a zombie survival film, as not only are the monsters to fear, but the people around you as well. The fact that the monsters are really hidden for most of this film only adds to the tension, as you never quite know what's out there. I also feel like one of the few people that actually enjoy Thomas Jane in most of his roles. So here in this one, I thought he did a great job in portraying this family man trying to keep his family alive, which of course led to a truly memorable ending that if you haven't seen is probably one of my favorite parts to actually get people to watch this movie and see the reaction to. So if you haven't checked it out, check out The Mist and let me know what you thought of this harrowing tale. Damon's number two, The Descent. Dead animals, hundreds of them. This is not good, guys. Can we get out of here? Which way? Come on. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? There's no breeze. It could be any one of these tunnels. Take your pick. Oh, oh fuck it. Hello! Please. Is there anybody there? Hello! Sarah is drowning in grief after suffering a devastating loss, so her friends decide to take her on a spelunking adventure with the hopes of giving her a moment of relief from her despair. What ensues is a claustrophobic nightmare of epic proportions, as we watch the group discover they're not alone in the caves as they're savagely hunted by a species of humanoid Nosferatu-like creatures. With this film, Neil Marshall gives us the ultimate tale of perseverance as we watch Sarah, literally in her darkest hour, choose to fight and survive against impossible odds. While the descent is violent and graphic, it's also just the perfect example of how the build suspense and tension through the expert use of elements like light and sound. The film is just a powder keg of emotions as we watch Sarah tap into something primal as she attempts to make her escape. The Descent is a terrifying yet strangely therapeutic experience that just checks all the right boxes and is the kind of film that horror fans won't soon forget. Christian's number two, Saw. There's only one key to open the device. It's in the stomach of your dead soulmate. Look around, Amanda. Know that I'm not lying. You better hurry up. Live or die. Make your choice. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you'll know that it's a family tradition of mine to see every Saw movie. It was a franchise that dominated October throughout the 2000s. Jigsaw slaughtered those who needed to learn life lessons in dastardly traps, and people ate it up at the box office. James Wan's first film in the gruesome franchise introduced us to Tobin Bell's iconic performance as Jigsaw, the horror vigilante that gets up and close with his victims. And in that first outing, we watched two of them tear themselves apart trying to get themselves free. It's a film that easily sucks the audience in by having you imagine what you would do trapped in a Jigsaw puzzle, while also giving you an interesting villain that subverts the usual idea of a victim. The first three films are our horror month must watches for my house and i definitely think you should have been watching them already damon's number one the strangers why are you doing this to us 
Because you were home. Bar None, The Strangers is one of the best home invasion films ever produced. What makes it so effective is its nihilist approach to horror. The strangers have no motive or purpose other than just terrorizing a randomly chosen couple until it's time for them to meet their grisly end. Brian Bertino's film is more about the time-tested ingredients of suspense and tension instead of gore and a high body count. As we watch this bleak game of cat and mouse really draw you in with the amazing use of shadows and sound. It's not necessarily about what you see, it's more about the overwhelming sense of dread that looms over the film. Bertino decides to forego spectacle for the choice of keeping the violence more grounded and real, making the film even more difficult to watch. And this is all heightened by the performances of Scott Speedman and Liv Tyler, whose torment resonates on a different level because they feel like fully formed characters, as we're dropped in the middle of them in emotional turmoil. This gives their characters depth without tons of exposition. So when we do get to that now iconic scene at the end of the film, and we hear the chilling explanation on why this couple is about to meet their end, quote unquote, because you were home, it makes it even more heartbreaking. With The Strangers, Bertino reminds us that death can always be the next knock we hear at the door and just how fleeting life can be. It taps into a fear in a way many films seldomly do. And that's what makes it an easy choice for my favorite horror film of the 2000s. Christian's number one, Exorcism of Emily Rose. Our Father, who art in heaven. I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from A battle in the courtroom becomes a battle of faith in Scott Derrickson's Exorcism of Emily Rose. It tells the story of an exorcism gone wrong as the priest stands trial after failing to save Emily Rose. And the way it plays out is more of a backdrop to the trial's proceedings as we get the horrifying retelling throughout the case, which Jennifer Carpenter as Emily Rose puts on one of the best performances of a demon's prey since The Exorcist. Not that I'm saying that this film can hold a torch to the exorcist but its unique take on the genre with strong performances is what makes the proceedings of this trial haunting as we watch it affect laura linney's character aaron brunner who's trying to defend tom wilkinson's father more from its subtle scares as aaron brunner gets haunted to its memorable exorcism it was no wonder i woke up during the witching hour myself after watching the film for the first time even so what's great about this movie is the way that it also makes you question the events of the exorcist the entire time as you wonder if she was actually possessed or needed medication like the prosecution lays out because that seems like the more logical answer but all wrapped up together it made for a fun take on the exorcism genre and one that belongs right here at the top of my horror month countdown well all right david we saw a movie this week yep that's right christian we saw halloween ends warning spoiler alert major spoilers for halloween ahead full movie spoilers you have been warned. And now, our feature presentation. I 
was certain that I saw him watching me. You pretend like you moved on, but you're actually just obsessed with death. What are you gonna do when Michael comes back for you? Because he is coming. But this time, something feels different. He's more dangerous. The saga of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode comes to a spine-chilling climax in the final installment of this trilogy. Does it, though? <laughs> <laughs> Directed by David Gordon Green and stars Jamie Lee Curtis. All right, so spoilers ahead because I don't think I could do my absolute disdain for this film justice without going into details. And honestly, I'll take solace in knowing that maybe taking a deeper dive than usual might help steer you away from ever watching this film. Because holy crap, this was awful. For better or worse, Halloween is my favorite horror series of all time. Nothing quite beats watching Michael stalk an unexpecting victim on the streets of Haddonfield with the backdrop of a crisp Halloween night. I mean, as long as I get that, I can look past a lot of the franchise's flaws, and I have in the past. Um, and while I wasn't the biggest fan of the last two offerings from David Gordon Green, especially the previous Halloween Kills, at least each of those films had moments that managed to tap into that ambiance and spirit of what I loved about the series. Halloween Ends has none of that. I mean, after Halloween Kills, I had little to no expectations going into this movie, and it still managed to disappoint me somehow. <laughs> and the reason, I think, is because David Gordon Green had no interest in giving us another Halloween film. Instead, we get this half-assed spin-off film about some dude named Corey we've never met before. And he takes up the majority of screen time. Now. I don't mind thinking outside of the box, but to shift the narrative in the finale of a trilogy to some random dude we've never met before? Well, needless to say, Green has apparently lost the plot. I mean, I understand wanting to explore the legacy of evil and trauma that Michael has caused the people of Haddonfield, but at the most, you do it in a subplot thread or it's a layered subtext throughout the movie. But the fact that Michael Myers is basically an afterthought in his own fucking film is unforgivable. I mean, imagine if Return of the Jedi, George Lucas decided to leave out Vader and the Empire and went with another group of villains until maybe the end of the film. I mean, it's just a betrayal, and I know I've been using this a lot lately, of the promise of premise. Like your last two films and, you know, this movie's marketing campaign for that matter, is all building up to the final showdown between Laurie and Michael. And that moment ends up just being kind of shoehorned in at the end. I mean, to prove further that Green lost interest in the series, uh, all I have to do is really point to the character of Laurie, who just feels like a different person altogether in this movie. I mean, you're telling me after 40 years of being completely obsessed with the slight possibility that the man who murdered your friends might break out one day to the point where you ruin your family's life and you turn your house into a giant booby trap going completely Sarah Connor that when he does actually escape and murders your daughter, that that's when you choose to move on and find your resolve. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, and I know four years have passed, but I don't care how much therapy she's gotten. At this point with this character, after her daughter's murdered, like, she's going off the fucking rails. And mind you, Michael's still out there. Like, <laughs> this is just lazy writing. Green wanted to move on from these films, obviously, and do maybe a remake of Christine, because that's really what this Corey storyline is. It's John Carpenter's Christine. Like, and that's all fine and good. Like, you know, more power to him, but do it on your own time. Let someone else direct Halloween then, right? I mean, I don't get it. I don't get it. Sorry, anyway, I'm done ranting. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to give Halloween ends an F. Uh, Corey's legacy will live in infamy and sit next to good old Roy from Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. Um, as a Halloween fan, I know if Michael can survive getting his ass handed to him by Buster Rhymes, he can also survive this mess of a trilogy, so I'm not concerned for the series. But let's get back to the basics so the real Michael can haunt Haddonfield once again, goddammit. Yeah, I never expected this film to hit a low where I'm looking at Halloween Resurrection as a better movie, but here we are. I'm just going to say it up front, my grade is an F as well. I was absolutely floored by how much this film seemed to just disregard everything it had shown us up to this point in the trilogy. Where it got me thinking that, you know, is this just Green trolling the audience? But Damon is most likely correct here, you know, about him just not being interested in making a third installment. And that's why it just kind of ended up being a piece of shit in the end. There's simply so much that doesn't make sense about the choices made here, from, you know, Corey's relationship with Laurie's granddaughter to Laurie's characterization altogether. It feels like in the edit for this film, um, a lot was just left on the floor to put more Michael in because it was borderline disrespectful how easily Laurie's granddaughter fell in love with Corey. But even if I take it as, you know, scenes or cut, the dialogue still was just awful. Corey, you know, would just say some shit like, I killed a kid, and then they would start making out. The chemistry there was just so fucking off. But again, I'm talking about a love story rather than Michael Myers stalking and killing his prey, which is the basis of a Halloween film. And don't even get me started on Laurie herself in this, because it gives me a headache thinking about those first two films and then seeing her live her best life in this one after the child she, you know, traumatized training for Michael's return was ultimately murdered by him. Just so frustrating to see that those first two films meant absolutely nothing to this one. While Kills was a bad movie overall, it was at least fun to watch. Halloween Ends made me want to sue for wasted time and damages. Shit script, shit kills, shit performances. Don't watch this movie, let it die. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for House of the Dragon ahead. You have been warned. The word of my house is not fickle. No, but, dear cousin, you, more than any soul alive, understand what I say now. Mrs. Release, I loved my husband, but I will speak the truth we both know. You should have been queen. 
The king is dead, folks, and this week the high towers did everything in their power to make sure Aegon became king. In what was one of the more simpler episodes of House of the Dragon we got so far, this episode focuses on the direct next day after Viserys speaks his final words that Alicent unfortunately misunderstood as the king's wish to have her son, you know, on the throne. When in reality he was just talking about the prophecy of Aegon the Conqueror. While Alicent in this week's episode feels like she is in the right, we the audience know she's not, and most of the people in power didn't really care to begin with, as their plan was always to betray Viserys' choice to put Rhaenyra on the throne. I really love the council scene that Alicent finally finds this out and gets a better idea of what her father has been plotting all this time, almost showing her that Viserys was kind of right to remove him as hand, as he was working in his own self-interest. Alicent's son Aegon is missing throughout this episode, and it becomes a race to find the new king, as Otto and Alicent both send out guards to find him. We find out the Grey Worm spy network essentially has hidden him, and Sir Criston, along with Aegon, stop him from being taken to Otto, who was most likely just going to beat his ass into doing what he wants. Aegon's reluctancy to become king is clearly going to be a big plot thread by the end of the show, but by this episode's end, he does seem to embrace being a king, if not for the fact that everyone must now listen to his will. Also, Alicent's descent into darkness is falling faster and faster as each episode goes by, as she apparently has been forced to show feet to good old Lord Larry's as payment for his services. Gotta love a man of culture, am I right? But let's talk the meat and potatoes of this episode, which was Rhaenys. In this episode, at first, the Hightowers do everything in their power to lock up anyone who could spread the word of Viserys' death to Rhaenyra. This includes Princess Rhaenys of Driftmark, who has shown some loyalty to Rhaenyra from time to time. While the other lords were forced to bend the knee or die, Alicent tried to speak mother to mother to Rhaenys, but it clearly doesn't go her way. One of the guards working for Otto, though, seems to be against Aegon taking the throne, knowing how awful of a person he actually is. So the guard Eric attempts to get Rhaenys out of the city, but Rhaenys ends up getting dragged with the rest of the citizens of King's Landing into going to Aegon's coronation. So what does this badass do? She sneaks back underneath all of this and finds her dragon and bursts out through the fucking floor, killing hundreds of innocent people as she makes her escape. But before that, she has a clear opportunity to kill all of the quote, greens, which would have prevented all the war to come. I do agree with the creators that up until this point, Rhaenys' more neutral attitude towards both sides didn't seem like she would be in the right to kill all of them. Though, fuck the peasants of King's Landing, right? Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed that the you know showrunner after the show fully acknowledged that people might not like this decision. And there's a part of me that doesn't because it's you know the first real time that characters have felt like they have this kind of plot armor to them. But I also get for her character to see Alicent protect her son in the last moment, knowing they're going to die no matter what, possibly speaking to her and her mothership of her over her kids, you know, especially her being in a wounded place after a couple of her children have died, but ultimately we will see how much this choice bites her in the ass when we talk and review the season finale of the House of Dragon next time on The Amazing Nerd Show. And now it's time for Christian's Corner. 
Welp, the gaming news gods were smiling down on me this week. For starters, I want to apologize though. I was totally mistaken on what time these streams were actually going to happen during this week. You know, I actually thought both the Resident Evil stream and the Konami stream for uh, Silent Hill were going to happen at the same time on Thursday. So I was completely thrown off when stuff happened on Wednesday. And then I missed that the Resident Evil one was still on Thursday. And that's why I didn't do live reactions. I just fucked up on my scheduling and all that stuff. So I apologize there, but either way, both these showcases came in full survival horror force. To start, Silent Hill makes its long-awaited return with multiple projects. The psychological hell ride that is Silent Hill 2 seems to be getting similar treatment as the old Resident Evil games with a remake. This will be a PS5 exclusive. In many ways, I feel like this will be more of a challenge than Resident Evil's remake so far, as a lot of what makes Silent Hill horrifying are the smaller details and the atmospheric gameplay that has, you know, this feeling of dread and despair captured in every sequence. I do still have some high hopes though, because the remakes of the Resident Evil games have been fantastic. But I mean, this is a completely different team, different people working on it. So who knows if they're going to be able to capture that rogue feeling that that original team put into this game. Of course, we will keep you up to date on everything Silent Hill 2. But to continue, the second trailer shown off by Konami was a Silent Hill Townfall, which is being worked on by the No Code team over at Annapurna, which Annapurna is best known for their recent hits like Stray and Outer Wilds. It was very much a teaser trailer, but it's exciting to see new game creators work on you know Silent Hill projects. And No Code is apparently used to psychological horror, so we'll see how they handle this. I do expect it though to be a smaller game experience. After that, they talked about a potential new um, Silent Hill film. They have it in the works. They have the original director from the first one working on it. Um, he talked about being a real gamer and then proceeded to seem to not know what the characters' names were at certain points. Uh, it, it, the, uh, there's a lot of parts in this transmission that were a little bit too awkward and a little bit too scripted. It just You could tell how much these guys were all just reading off of props next to the cameras um, the entire time. No one felt all that genuine, but it is what it is. I'm pretty used to all these conferences and how awkward they can be. Gamers are just weird in general. Though the film does sound like it's being focused on the uh, second game. They're really harping on Silent Hill 2, and which Silent Hill 2 could make for a great film. However, the first one was an okay film. I wouldn't say it was a great movie, and I would hope for and I was kind of hoping if they did go back to making more Silent Hill films that they might pick a you know a new team or something like that or we might get some a better director maybe like a Robert Eggers or something that's just my you know personal choice if I were to have another Silent Hill movie but whatever let's move on to the more of the game side which there was a new interactive experience that was shown off where it seems like it will be a show where the viewers will kind of have influence over what happens. JJ um, Abrams Bad Robots and Genvid are working together on this project which led to another great moment where they could only get a quote <laughs> from J.J. Abrams. They couldn't actually get a video from him. I just feel like most projects that are kind of show-based, where the audience is picking what happens, um, tend to not go too far. I would have rather it had been something like a Telltale game, like that kind of experience, where you know if you want to stream it, you can have the audience help you pick choices and stuff like that. I feel like that would have been a better route, but I don't know what the game is. I haven't seen it 
yet or how it's going to look so who knows they had a very weird um silent hill character that i've never seen before on screen so who knows what's going to happen either way by the transmissions end we were introduced to one more game coming from the franchise silent hill f set in the 1960s japan silent hill f will be a bit of a spin on the traditional game where writer ryukishi 7 known for his work on the uh when they cry visual novels along with nintendo's modi akamato who worked on luigi's mansion will be working on this game with studio um, neobards who are currently working on the resident evil reverse game and have been known to work on several other resident evil experiences the trailer itself showed a japanese girl kind of getting consumed by a colorful coral which while a gruesome visual seemed kind of different than anything you would expect from silent hill but again it's just exciting to see you know new projects come out for this franchise you know since it's been over 20 years since it started and a horror game set in japan either way just sounds interesting to me anyway but with that said we also had the resident evil showcase where they of course started off by giving us a bigger glimpse at the gold edition of resident evil village with more third party with more third person gameplay and a loose description of the you know subconscious adventure rose will be taking as she attempts to get rid of her powers for those waiting for reverse to come out they reminded players that this is a free edition added with the purchase of village and that an early access event for the game would begin on the 23rd at 9 p.m central time they also promised several future updates for this multiplayer experience for Switch users who haven't gotten a chance to play Resident Evil Village, there will be a cloud version of the game available on October 28th with the expansion set for December 2nd. Along with that, the remakes of Resident Evil 2 and 3 will be available via cloud in November on the 11th and 18th, while Resident Evil 7 will come December 16th for Switch Cloud. And lastly, the event showed off a full gameplay trailer of Resident Evil 4 Remake, showing off the pure chaos of the opening of this horror game classic in all its glory and holy fuck there's a chainsaw parry like resident evil 2 i'm incredibly impressed with this remake so far it feels like the best of both worlds with the original and resident evil village kind of putting in their gameplay here the updated models are on par from what we got with the you know current remakes so i was already happy there but just the added fluidity in gameplay to match industry standards today makes this a must play for me personally as i was already a huge fan of the original the showed off two additional purchase options for the game with the deluxe version adding you know extra costumes and skins along with a along with a soundtrack swap which i thought was pretty interesting and then, of course, the collector's edition will feature a figure of Leon, plus a steelbook, art book, poster, and everything that comes with the deluxe version of the game. I can't wait to scream at Ashley once more on March 24th, 2023. Next weekend, though, we will be starting the Shadows of Rose campaign for Resident Evil Village and might play some of the new Mercenaries mode as well. So make sure to catch us live on Twitch this Halloween weekend as we have been playing tons right now with the Quarry, Alien Isolation, Scorn, and a whole lot more. So check us out on Saturdays through Tuesday for live Amazing Nerd Show content. Now, let's move on to wrestling. I wanted to light a fire under your backside. One, because we live in a day and age where you can't. 
have grown men smashing your face in when you're 16 and when you're 17 and when you're crying every single night that you go to bed and there's blood running out of every hole in your body and you want to quit but you won't let yourself because at 17 I said no I will not quit I will keep going because I am going to be a professional wrestler and if a bloody email is what it took to get you to this place and you've held on to that for seven years. You've had it easy, sunshine. All right, Christian. Well, you know, due to us wanting to keep this show under two hours, uh, we're going to have to <laughs> cut wrestling a little short this week. But before we go, there were some, you know, highlights from this past week's AEW's Dynamite that we did want to at least cover. Um, up first, uh, we had a really terrifying situation. Uh, with the main event being uh, called off uh, due to an injury to Hangman Page. I don't know about you, but when this happened, like, I feared the worst, um, especially with, like, how quick um, the ref, like, reacted. Uh, And we saw, like, Doc Samson in the ring right away. Um, You know, I mean, Hangman was laying really stiff, too. Um, So I just, I don't know, man, I, I was concerned that it was, you know, a neck injury of some sort. Um, you know, we did find out too that, you know, they end up having to take the bottom rope off, you know, to get him out of the ring, which is something I've only seen them do for really serious injuries. Um, it looks like it was just a concussion. I, I know I shouldn't say just a concussion because concussions could be pretty damn serious mm-hmm. too, but I was just, I don't know, relieved that it wasn't like a spinal injury of some sort. Um, you know, something similar to what, we, you know, what happened with Big E. Yeah, I watched um, Dynamite this week uh, on Wednesday. Uh, I just recorded it on Tuesday. And, you know, I knew about the injury before like, watching the match. So the entire time I'm just watching him hit his head over and over again. And I was like, when when's it going to happen? You know, what's what's mm-hmm. the moment that, you know, is taking out Hangman here? And it was it was it added a bit of extra tension there watching it. Yeah, I mean, in the moment, like I didn't realize what had happened, honestly, mm-hmm. until I saw the doctor in the ring. I mean, you see the ref kind of check on him right away. Um, but I wasn't quite sure until I saw the replays like a few times, like where the impact of the injuries was really at. Um, and from what I saw, at least, it looks like it was like how he hit the mat with his head. Because at first I was like, was it really like the clothesline from Moxley? Because at this point, like Moxley does that clothesline every week, pretty much, like mm-hmm. whenever he's in a match. And I mean, we've never known Moxley to injure someone. And I mean, shit happens. I, you know, that's not to say that it, it couldn't possibly be from that. But when you watch it in slow motion, it does feel like it's from the way his head landed on the canvas first before his body. You so, know, Kota Ibushi style. Yeah. yeah, well, I don't know how that dude's even walking. So, uh-huh. um, but yeah, no, it was just a freak accident. So, but I mean, knock on wood, he seems to be doing all right. Um, I don't know exactly what was planned for the match. I'm assuming Moxley was going to be walking out of Cincinnati, still champion. Um but yeah, I mean, AEW definitely needs to be applauded with how quickly they reacted to the situation that they actually like took it seriously. Because as a longtime wrestling fan, I've you know seen plenty of injuries take place in the ring, 
and like the wrestlers still try to just fight through it. Like, I mean, Jesus Christ, I've seen Stone Cold get pile drive like directly on his head and he's still forced to finish the match uh-huh. and like try to pull off, you know, a roll up. Um, that's after he couldn't feel any of his limbs. So which is just crazy to think. But that was the mindset back in the day. Like you finish the match no matter what. What was it? I just saw um, Triple H telling the story again where uh, Kurt Angle is dragged back to the ring with Stephanie during the triple threat match. And he's just out of it the entire time. So, yeah, they were supposed to be doing an injury angle to get Kurt out of the match for a period of time, um, you know, with Hunter pedigreeing him through the table. But what ended up happening was Kurt ended up actually getting a concussion uh, from the pedigree. So, like, I think the table collapsed before uh, Hunter actually executed the move. So then Kurt is taken in the back and he has a severe concussion. But because of, you know, the finish of the match, he was forced to go back out there. Um, And, like, Stephanie had to be on the outside of the ring with him, basically telling him, like, step by step what to do next. Because his head was just in the clouds at that point. I mean, throughout... The history of wrestling there's tons of stories like uh-huh. that so so at the time that was really nothing new or different i mean that was kind of the expectation right like you always finish the match no matter what um that was just the attitude and that, that goes across the board in all sports and it, that's mm. still kind of the attitude to this day i mean if you ask a lot of athletes who are in the heat of the battle in the middle of the game if they want to be pulled off the field because they're injured they're gonna lie through their fucking teeth it's just that fighting spirit or warrior mentality so that's when you really have to trust that you have people around you to make those decisions for you but anyway like I also thought they did a really great job of, like, calling an audible. Um, I don't know what was planned originally, but you could tell they were really, like, scrambling because they had so many minutes left on the show. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know if originally the plan was for MJF to come out, tease that he was going to cash in the poker chip. But if it wasn't, it was it was pulled off pretty seamlessly. Yeah, because there was a solid eight to nine minutes left for them to still fill during that whole segment. And you could tell like Moxley was improving because he was just dropping F bombs left and uh-huh. right. <laughs> and they kept on having to like censor him. I was like, oh my God, what the hell? <laughs> Does he not realize he's still on like air right now? <laughs> but you also gotta figure that he's completely shaken at that point too. Mm. You know, seeing you know, one of his co-workers and maybe friends like laid out that way and not knowing exactly what's going on and kind of expecting the worst. I mean, it did seem for the most part, he was trying to stay in character throughout that entire time. Like at least with Moxley, he's kind of built in this kind of, you know, finish for himself. Especially after everything that just happened with Punk. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't do a fine job. I I just, I have a feeling like Tony would have appreciated a few less like F-bombs. Oh, I'm sure. But speaking of MJF, uh, we got another contender for promo of the year between, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Maxwell and William Regal. Um, I thought this was fantastic work. Um, I mean, once they announced that Regal was going to have a one-on-one interview with Tony Schiavone, I just assumed that MJF was going to be involved somehow, especially with the seeds that they planted last week. And what we got from the segment was just some amazing storytelling. I mean, in the past, like MJF has actually like told this tale before. Um, So this is something that has happened. Uh, 
I just love that they're not scared to like tap into that. It just really helps to give MJF more wrinkles and depth as a character uh, as we just like slowly start to get like his villain origin story. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, if you think about it, we kind of got the first chapter of that, like with the CM Punk program. So, and this is just the next, you know, progression of that. But I mean, MJF had the crowd eating out of his hands. They actually turned on Regal mm-hmm. for a little bit. But then, you know, but then Regal's such a great performer that he ends up turning them back. <laughs> yes. Masterfully. <laughs> just amazing. Like an amazing segment. Um, and Dynamite has had so many of these um, over the past year. Like, I had a feeling, like we talked about last week, that MJF wouldn't cash in, you know, the chip until the pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know exactly how they would end up, like, pulling that off. Because MJF, being the scumbag that he is, would definitely take the easy way out as a character. Um, so I was kind of thinking, oh, it's going to be a situation where, like, Tony Khan, like, forces his hand mm-hmm. or something. Um, but this this was ten times more interesting than that. Um, yes. And what's cool about it is like they can go two routes with it. Like they can either have, you know, MJF actually earn it or, you know, once again, like he's pulling the wool over everyone's eyes. And, you know, this is all just some kind of elaborate ruse. And once he gets like, you know, Moxley and Regal's guard down, that's when he pounces, you know, and cheats to win. I mean, I won't be surprised if that's a big like um, part of the story in the match itself with like. Yeah. Uh, MJF the entire time is just trying to prove I can do this, I can do this, but then there's just moments where he could just reach out, wave his hand, and have um, whatever they're called come out the firm. Uh, with Stokely. The firm, yes. Yes. With Stokely. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's probably why they've teased the dissension between Stokely and MJF, mm. right? But with that being said, I wouldn't be surprised also if MJF doesn't reveal himself right before the pay-per-view um, just to play mind games with Moxley and like leave Regal like laying in a pool of blood because that's something they keep on teasing also like he uh. really wants to use that dynamite <laughs> diamond ring on Regal and he keeps on like you know restraining himself and it could just be a case of him waiting for the right moment yeah just absolutely great storytelling this week and I loved that it played into the actual end of the show it was just a great way of handling that like I I understood what you meant with like having Tony come out and stop him with the chip and stuff, but I always imagined he would just cash in like randomly because that just seemed perfect for him. I I appreciate that there was a storyline, you know, driven way of him doing it where it wasn't just Tony like fucking him over. You know? Yeah. No, and I, I it was more of a case of just business wise. It, it makes a whole lot more sense mm-hmm. for that match to take place on pay per view. Yeah. So, and I know that, you know, the chip has been good ratings for them. So that's why they kept kept on like teasing it. But it was like, okay, well, how do you get from point A, you know, you get all your, you know, TV ratings that you can and milk this thing for what it's worth, but then still get to point B, right? Which is a payoff on pay-per-view with, you know, people paying to see it. Um, so I think this was probably the most creative route they, they could possibly do. Cause it really is, is like getting your cake and eating it too. Because with like a month out, I wouldn't be surprised if MJF doesn't like wrestle a handful of matches to kind of like, you know, prove himself to Regal that he is deserving of this title shot. But with the whole like underlying reason for it all just being like 
him trying to get Moxley and Regal to drop their guard. And I don't know if this is going to come into play at all, but earlier on in the show, during their sit-down interview with Renee, we did see a little, like, tension between uh, Wheeler and uh, Brian Danielson. Um, And with what we saw play out in their match, um, there is a connection between MJF and Wheeler. Like, do we see Wheeler eventually turn on the Blackpool Combat Club and maybe even join up with MJF? I know it'd be a little out of left field, but like, could that possibly be part of like, you know, Maxwell's master plan? I mean, that would be a crazy turn of events. I don't know if he's, you know, planting those seeds there. I I, I would assume Wheeler is going to be more involved with, uh, you know, JAS side of things. But do you think you would end up joining up with uh, Jericho? I won't say that it's not possible, but I feel like that group is way too big. As it is <laughs> for the bad Wheeler. See, to me, it was really all about like Wheeler being jealous of the attention that Garcia has been getting from Brian. Hmm. So I don't think he would necessarily want to join up with Jericho and crew. But since they already kind of laid the groundwork and established that there has been a relationship between, you know, Wheeler and MJF, who knows? I mean, what a better way to, like, mindfuck, you know, the Blackpool, you know, combat club by, like, you know, having someone from the inside screw them. It's Seth Rollins with the chair all over again. Maybe. Take it out, Mox. Perhaps. <laughs> I mean, it would be a fun twist to the story. Um, you know, I mean, once they announced the sit-down interview between uh, Brian Danielson and Wheeler, I knew something was up um, because, like, why would they be having any kind of interview time? Mm. <laughs> Unless there's something happening between those two. I just wasn't expecting Yuta to go so hard at him. But I will say it's a bit of a bitch move to keep on using Claudio's name to back up everything <laughs> you're saying, especially when Claudio's not there. <laughs> uh, and Claudio agrees with me too, okay? Uh, but I think that was part of it, right? That that's uh, like one of those underlying layer things that they're doing where this isn't actually coming from an honest place with Wheeler. This is more about immaturity. You know, a jealousy, perhaps. But all in all, um, besides, you know, the unfortunate injury to Hangman, I thought this was a pretty damn great episode of Dynamite. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to, like, where all these storylines lead in the in the near future. But anyway, make sure to join us next week as it feels like we're officially on the road to full gear. Well, that does it for this week. That's right. And as a friendly reminder, if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, remember to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review. Exactly. It sure does help an independent podcast like ours continue to grow. And while you're at it, make sure to tell a friend. Plus, if you like any of the stories we talked about on this week's episode, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to catch the full articles, trailers, memes, and more. That's right. You can follow us at Amazing Nerd Show on all social media platforms. And hey, if you're looking for extra content, make sure to catch our streams every weekend on Twitch, plus YouTube videos Monday through Friday. Want to support the show further? You can head over to tpublic.com and get yourself some Amazing Nerd Show merch. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd swag if you live in the United States. Well, all right, David, what are we talking about next week? Uh, we should have a film review for Black Adam, and we'll also be breaking down the latest episode of Andor. Plus, I'll be reviewing Game of Thrones House of the Dragon and we'll be discussing more AEW. My name's Christian. And my name's Damon. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show. So you want to be on Dangerous?
see what you got. Whoa! 